Okay, welcome back. So this is class number two of Fundamentals of Prayer. We're gonna to try to um, expand, expound on what we developed last week. It's really, if you weren't here last week, it's okay. We're just gonna reference it a little bit, but most of it will be new. But what I, what I wanna do is also take what we learned and apply it to the new concepts and tie everything together. So we're sort of creating a, a broader picture. Just want to mention one idea which I came across, which I think is important, um, which is that in any, in, in any field or any hobby or anything that we do in life, as we engage in it more, we hope that we become better at it. And if we don't become better, then it probably means that we are not putting in the right, the requisite effort, the requisite amount of thought. And, and the same thing is true with prayer, that it over the years, I don't think this necessarily happens, but it should. We should get better at prayer. We should, we should develop those skills and, and, and work on them and, and, and end up in a better place than we were a few years ago when we started out. So I think it's just something important to think about, you know, how am I, what am I doing to improve? And, uh, and obviously, you know, attending classes about prayers are important. And then, but not just attending the class, really, it's the homework that we do in between. When we now go and dive and we go and pray, do we think about what we've learned? Do we try to apply it? That's really where the, the key is. And that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to find ourselves in a different place than we were last week or last year or five years ago. So, so we, we should be refining our, our ability in terms of connecting to it, in terms of concentration, in terms of finding meaning, in terms of understanding what we're doing. And uh, obviously that's what we're here for, to work on that. <clears throat> okay, now imagine the following situation. A person has some kind of heart condition. They've been to all the specialists and the doctors have all decided that what's needed is a very serious surgery, open heart surgery. And, uh, and this person is lying in, in a hospital bed awaiting surgery. He sees the, the doctors and the nurses preparing for the surgery and uh, he or she turns to the doctor and starts pleading with the doctor. No, please doctor, you're so kind, you're so caring. I know how much you care about me. Why do you have to do this? Why do you have to cut me open? Why do you have to do this surgery? Please just, just let me be, you know, let me just move on and don't, don't hurt me in this way. So the doctor obviously will turn to the patient and will say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't abide by your request. I can't, I can't do that. This is what you need. You need the surgery. You need this to happen to you so that you'll be better off <clears throat> in the end. If not, the consequences are much worse. So now if we take that and apply it to our relationship with God, with Hashem, a basic tenet of our faith is the idea that everything that God does is somehow for the best. We don't always understand 
We don't always know exactly what for the best means, but we understand we, 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 we are taught and we are to tr we are supposed to try to, to at least understand it on an intellectual level that uh, that whatever God does is is ultimately the best thing for for us for the world and for the best could mean that this is happening and it seems bad but in the end it will work out for the best could mean that we needed to experience some kind of challenge in life to grow in some way um, it could mean that it was necessary for our soul to experience a difficult situation a painful situation our soul needed some kind of a cleansing needed to experience some degree of suffering, but it was for a reason, it was for a purpose. And so if we, if we take that idea and that being the case, so now it seems kind of strange that the whole concept of davening, of praying for a situation to be reversed. We're literally like that person who's about to experience surgery. If whatever we're going through, God has ordained that we go through it. It's for the best. It's what we need. So then it's like turning to the doctor and saying, excuse me, doctor, please don't, please don't do this to me. Please don't. I don't want to experience this pain. And the doctor says, I, I'm sorry. You know, this is what you need. This is what's best for you. So what's this idea of, of, of praying to God for our situation to change? Are we trying to change God's mind? Are we trying to convince him? that actually God, you know, you thought that this is what's best for me. I have a different idea. Maybe it's best if we just, we just skip this, this difficult challenge. We skip this suffering. That doesn't make sense. We, God is perfect. God knows exactly what is best for us. So how do we understand the concept of praying for God to reverse a decree to change his mind, so to speak, to, to, to change the reality on our behalf. So <clears throat> we can really understand this in multiple ways. Um, so they build on each other, but let's start with a concept from the Gemara, from the Talmud in Hulang. It's the first source on the source sheet. And it's, it's, it's coming off of a verse that talks about right at the at the end of creation after God has created man. So there's a verse that reads in chapter two of Beratius of Genesis. The verse reads, "No tree of the field was yet on the earth, neither did any herb of the field yet grow, because the Lord God had not brought rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil." So the verse describes that nothing had grown yet because there was no man there. God had not yet brought rain, and there was no man to work the soil. So the Talmud makes the following point. It raises a contradiction. It says, number one, it says, Rav Asi raises a contradiction between two verses. It is written, and the earth brought forth grass. So that's, this for, that's back in, as it says, on the third day of the week of creation. So God is creating the world. Day number three, God creates the vegetation. And the verse describes God brought forth grass. And it's also written, that no shrub on the field was yet in the earth, that nothing had actually grown yet. That's what it says when man is created. So there's a contradiction here. On the one hand, it says that God brought forth um, green greenery, and another verse says that nothing had yet grown. 
So how does the Talmud resolve the contradiction? The Talmud explains, this teaches that the grasses emerged on the third day when God created vegetation and stood at the opening of the ground, but they did not grow until Adam, the first man came and prayed for mercy upon them and rain came <clears throat> and they sprouted. So there, it's, it's there, it's on the verge of coming out, but the grass does not grow until God creates man. Man prays, the rain comes, and then out comes the vegetation. And the Talmud concludes that paragraph and it says, this is meant to teach you that the Holy One, blessed be he, <clears throat> desires the prayers of the righteous. That God desires our prayers. So we, we see something very interesting from this this paragraph in the Talmud. We see that clearly plants were supposed to grow. They're, right, God created them so that they would grow. That's his plan. That's, that's exactly what he wants to happen. That's how he sees things going. But God holds back. He holds back the, 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 the plants from growing, the vegetation. And why? Because he wants man to pray for it. And why does he want man to pray for it? Because he desires the prayers of the righteous. He wanted Adam to ask, to daven, that the grass grows. <clears throat> this isn't the only place that we find a concept like this. You know, God promises Abraham, Abraham that he's going to make his offspring like the, the stars in the sand. It's going to create a great nation out of him. <clears throat> Yet we know that Certainly, his, his children, his child, his son, Yitzchak, Yitzchak, the, the, the Torah describes how Yitzchak didn't have a child for a long time. He and his wife, Rivka, they, they have to pray, and they're praying and praying, and finally, God listens to their prayers and gives them children. But wasn't that God's plan all along? God had promised that he was going to give them children. He promised Abraham that he's going to make a great nation out of him. So there's something that's supposed to happen, but again, God's waiting to hear their prayers before he brings it about. We see it again in Egypt. Again, God promised Abraham, I'm going to send your descendants down to Egypt. They're going to be slaves there. They're going to be afflicted. And then I'm going to take them out. It's part of the promise. I'm going to take them out. God's not going to go back on that promise. And yet, what does the Torah describe? It, it says that the Jewish people cried out to God and God heard their prayers. And that's when everything really starts to be set in motion. God assigns Moses, Moshe to, to become the leader. It, he waits. He's promised to take them out, but he waits until, I'm sure they were praying a lot, but until their prayers reached a certain level, then God was ready to take them out. So, so we see very clearly the Torah is teaching us that at times we, there may be something that's on the verge of happening for us, that God wants to give us what's really best for us, but we need to actually take a role. We have to play a part in, uh, in bringing it about. Just as we have a concept, you know, in physically, right? We, we, we can't just say, you know, everything God does is for the best. So I'm just gonna sit on my hands all day and I'm never going to get out of bed. And whatever happens will be for the best. We, we have a responsibility to take action, 
to make the best. It could be then that situation, then, I mean, the best may change what, you know, what's, what's meant for us, but we, we, are, we are required to, to be involved in some, in some way. And so it could be the same is true when it comes to prayer, that, that there's something out there that God wants to give us. It's really ideal for us, but, we, but God wants us to be involved. God wants us to, to pray and ask for it. <clears throat> and, but the way that the Talmud really describes that, why, why does God want us to play an active role? The reason it says is because God desires the prayers of the righteous, which he certainly desires the prayers of the righteous. He really desires the prayers of, of, of everyone. He, he desires all of our prayers. <clears throat> and uh, I want to try to drill down into, into why, why that is and what that means. Um, <clears throat> so the truth is to really understand this, why does God desire our prayers? We really have to get into the very purpose of creation, the very purpose of our existence. Now, if you've taken a series with me, we've probably done this before because I find that I end up speaking about this every single time I give a, a class, a series, but which makes sense because we always have to, we have to have an answer to this question, right? What, what, is, the, what is our purpose? And there may be different, different answers that, that, that we find in our tradition, but one of the, the, the most recognized accepting answers is an idea that actually comes from the Kabbalistic tradition. Um, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzata writes about it in his book, Derech Hashem, The Way of God. But he really, it's, it's already found in earlier Kabbalistic sources dating back to, to the times of the Arizal, like 16th century. And the idea is, and I put a, a few lines of it in the, in the source sheet, it's number two, where Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, writes, the purpose of creation was for God to give from his goodness. May he be blessed to another besides for him. God wanted to, you know, before creation, it was just God in his mighty realm. And we can't really understand what that is. We, we're not to really try to try to understand it, to try to think about it. But before creation, there was nothing. And, but God wanted a being to bestow goodness upon. Now, we're talking about God here. So if God wants to bestow goodness, God being perfect, the goodness that God would want to bestow would have to be the, the, the greatest good, the most perfect good that, 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 that such a being could possibly experience, right? So as he writes, since his desire may be blessed was to do good to others, it would not be sufficient for him to do a little good but rather only in giving the full goodness that is possible for the creatures to receive. So it would have to be God being perfect, the good that God wanted to bestow would have to be the, 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 the greatest good that a recipient creation could possibly receive. And in his alone, it may be blessed being the true good, his good desire would only be satisfied by giving others that very good that is within him, may he be blessed. It's a little hard to like sparse together in the, in the English, but basically the idea is that the ultimate good, what could be greater than experiencing God? That is the ultimate good. If God is, is, is the most perfect being, then the greatest experience would be to connect with, with, with him, which is the truly perfect good. 
So therefore, his wisdom decreed that the nature of this true good giving would be that a place be given to the creatures to cleave to him. May he be blessed according to the measure of what is possible for them to cleave. So God would create a, a realm, a creation, which gives the opportunity for this being to cleave to God. Now, the truth is that that point, we're really, we really haven't come to the creation of the world yet. We're even before that. We're now just at a point where there are just souls and, and God saying, you know, here's the, the ultimate good. I want to give you the ultimate good. I'm going to create souls. Now come, come and bask in my goodness. That way you'll experience the ultimate good. Bill, you want to jump in? Yeah, what's, what's the Hebrew word for perfect good? Um, I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, but it, um, oh, sorry, I didn't mean. Yeah, no, wasn't it's a fine. Test. Shle- yeah, yeah. It's a, it probably is like shleimut, shleimus, um, tov or tov ha'miti, like the truest good. I don't remember the exact language that he uses. Um, <clears throat> so, so, but, but at that point, we could say, listen, it's enough to just uh, just create souls. God could just create souls and cake. You know, come on, come enjoy, come experience the greatest good. But if God would do that, then actually it wouldn't be the greatest good. It wouldn't be the greatest experience because a greater experience would be, in order for, for that good to be the ultimate good, it would have to be that the, the, the creation that's, that's experiencing it is the master, is the owner of that good, has earned it. Something that we've earned for ourselves is more enjoyable than something that we're given. And so therefore, if this has to be the ultimate good, it has to be earned. So it's it's to our benefit to create a, a situation where we have the ability to earn that good. And in order to earn it, we have to be challenged. We have to be put in a, in a place where there are different things pulling us in different directions. There's good and there's evil. There's the good inclination, there's the evil inclination. There's temptation to do good, there's temptation to do evil. And so God creates this, this, uh, this, this world, this ecosystem, where we have that challenge. We have free will, and we have the, the, the ability to earn, the, to earn our, our way, our right to, have an ex- to, to, to experience God. Now, the ultimate experience of God will come about in, in two different, in, in, in a combina- with a combination of factors. Number one is that to, to, to truly have the closest relationship and therefore experience the, the, the ultimate good, we have to make ourselves similar to God. Because by being similar, those, those people who are similar have the ability to get closer. So in order to become the closest to God and experience that connection to its highest degree, we need to make ourselves sim- similar and emulate God, God's ways. So, so sort of mission number one is to try to walk in God's ways and, 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 and emulate his character traits. <clears throat> um, but there's lots of people who can develop good character, but yet don't find themselves coming close to God because that's just one, one, one part of it. One part is to make ourselves similar, but then we have to perform actions that actually bring us close, right? They actually bring us close to God. So there's a famous Mishnah in, uh, in Ethics of the Fathers. It's number three on the source sheet. 
He used to say, Shimon Atzadik used to say, the world stands on three things, on Torah, on Avoda, which is service, and on Gmilus Chasadim, and on acts of kindness. So I believe that you can understand this Mishnah to really be speaking to this very point, that what does the world stand on? Meaning, what is the purpose of this world? How can the, or how can the mission, the purpose of the world be achieved? And Shimon Atzadik is teaching us that there's three things that are necessary to bring about the purpose of the world, that the world stands on. Number one, or number three, we'll start off is Gemilus Chasadim, acts of kindness. That speaks to developing our, our character and obviously not just ourselves, but, but, but acting on it. So that's, that's making ourselves similar to God. And then there's Torah and Avoda. Torah is Torah study and Avoda is service. So Torah study is the underlying, you know, factor is, 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 the, is, is essential for everything because you, you need Torah study to know how to act. You need Torah study to know what to think. You need, you need Torah study to understand and, and, and develop a belief in God. So Torah study is, is the backdrop to everything. That's what guides us in everything. And in the middle there is avoda, is service of God. And what I believe service of God stands for or could stand for in this, in this context is that that's the way that we actually bring ourselves close to God. So we've, we've studied Torah, we know what we're supposed to do. We know how to develop our character traits. We, we are, we're developing our character traits, but how do we actually bring ourselves close to God? And the answer is avoda, is service. And specifically for us, tefillah, prayer. Because but through prayer, we draw ourselves close to God. So, so I think that that helps us understand this idea that God wishes for the desires, the prayers of the righteous, because that's ultimately the, uh, the purpose of creation is for us to draw near to God. That's what he wants. He wants to bestow of his goodness on us. So sometimes you may have to set things up a little bit to require us to act and bring ourselves closer. Now you can imagine two kids going off to college and uh, one of them, his father gives him a credit card and he says, here it is, it's yours for the year. You could spend whatever you want. The other one gives him a debit card and he says, there's $50 on here. When you use up the $50, call me and I'll, I'll, I'll add, you know, we'll see, we'll talk. Maybe I'll add some more to it. So, so they go off to college and, uh, and the guy who's, who has the credit card that he could use as much as he wants, so he does, he just uses it however much he wants, but he never calls home because there's no reason to call home. While the boy who, the, who has the, the debit card that he has to refill every time he spends 50 bucks, he's calling home all the time. And he's asking dad, you know, could you please refill the debit card? So which father loves his son more? I don't know. But it's possible that it's number two, right? It's, it's, it's entirely likely. The number two, he wants to make sure that he has a relationship with his son. He wants to make sure that his son is calling him every week. 
And that way they can talk, that way they can connect, that way they can maintain a good relationship. So it could be that God wants to bestow goodness on us. He wants to give us something. And it's waiting there. The potential is right there. It's like the grass that's sticking out of the ground almost. But if he just gives it to us, then where do we have the opportunity to create our relationship with him? So therefore, God, God, God arranges it that you, you, you can have it, but only if you pray for it. So that's, that's one, one step. We're not changing God's mind. It could be that it's exactly what God wants to give to us, but, uh, but we just, he, he wants us to actually ask for it. Um, it doesn't fully answer the whole question. You know, it definitely helps us understand that we're not changing God's mind. But I don't know if it deals with like the deeper philosophical question of whatever happens is for the best. So why are we praying that something change? Right? We're trying to answer it. We're, I'm suggesting somewhat that, that maybe we, it's, it's to the best as long as we do our part. It's for the best as long as we do our part and we have to do our part in it. But maybe there's another, another approach also. So that's, that's one very important approach. And it's, it's a key, key facet of tefillah in any event, whether, whether it fully answers the, the, all the questions or not, it's a very important a aspect of tefillah, which is that it draws us near. And just to connect it back actually to what we, what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about the, the importance of opening up our prayers with praising God. And we said, we're not trying to just uh, sort of butter him up and, you know, say like, oh God, you're so great. Please, uh, you know, give me, give me my, my requests. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we are first clarifying for ourselves that we're clarifying for ourselves before we ask for anything that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who can give us whatever we need. And, and it's possible even, we said, that that's the whole purpose of, of, of prayer, at least daily prayer. When we get, go to pray, the point isn't whether we're going to get what we're asking for. That will leave up to God whether it's best for us or not. The point is for us to, to have an experience where we, we develop the, the clarity that God is in control and God is the one who can provide us with whatever we need. And then when we then actually ask for something, it's so much more meaningful. It comes from much deeper in our hearts. We really believe it if we've worked on developing that. And if we really believe that we're talking to God and he can actually grant us what we, what we, what we desire, then we're really talking to him. And then we're connecting with him much more. So Rabbi. I think it, it all flows together that it starts with this, this, this outlook, this, this, this perspective that we enter prayer with the, you know, clarifying for ourselves that God can give us what we need. We're, we're speaking to the right being. He's the one who can, who can provide us. He's the one who, 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 who controls everything. Then when we ask, we're really asking from, from deep in our hearts. And that means we're really connecting, which is ultimately the purpose of it. The ultimate purpose is for us to connect to God because that in a certain sense we're saying is the ultimate purpose of all of creation. Okay, yeah, um, go um, ahead. Isn't one other purpose of praying is that 
when we finish praying, we should be a better person than we were when we started. Excellent. Excellent. So that's exactly what we're going to move on to right now. And well, I'll, I'll elaborate on what she means by that. So, so what, what uh, Mrs. Silverman is saying is that we can answer the question in another way, that our question was, why am I praying? Isn't this what's best for me? So the basic answer is, it's best for me as I am now, but maybe after I pray, what's best for me might change, might be different. You know, going back to our analogy of the, of the, the, the heart patient needs surgery, right? Or so they think he needs surgery. All the doctors are saying you need open heart surgery, but there's one doctor who says, well, you know, that's, that's what most people would do in this situation, but there is another way. If you exercise daily for an hour and you change your diet and you do this and that, so then you'll actually be able to avoid that heart surgery. You won't need it anymore. There will be, a, there's another way for you to get to where you need to get to good health. So the same thing is, it could be said about life and, and challenges and prayer. And that is, that it's true. As we stand right now, right at this moment, a certain experience, a certain challenge may be what's best for us. But if we then go and pray and we develop ourselves and we change ourselves, then when we come out the other side, we can be a different person. We've we've adjusted our spiritual situation, so to speak, right? That was what was needed if I didn't pray, if I didn't improve myself, if I didn't change. But now that I've responded in this way, now I've developed my faith, my amuna. I'm a new person now. And the new person maybe, maybe doesn't need that, uh, that experience anymore. And therefore God says, when I was planning that this person should, should have a certain experience, certain challenge, certain suffering, that was before they prayed. But now that they've prayed, they're a new person. This new person doesn't need that anymore. That's another way to understand this. The, the, the thing is that that helps us understand um, when we're praying for ourselves. It won't necessarily answer how it helps to pray for others. Right, because if let's say for an individual, so they again, everything God does for the best, this person has experienced a certain amount of suffering, a certain difficulty in life. So, so what they need is, is merits, they need merits. So they pray and they get merits, and now God says, Okay, you know, you've uh, you, this, you don't you no longer need to have this experience. You're, you're, you've, you've cleansed your soul, you've overcome, you found another way to get to where you need to be. So that works for an individual praying for themselves. But how does that work to pray for others? If I change myself, how does that help to, that doesn't change the other person. So what the commentaries explain is that actually it, it does. Because all of our merits, they all play off each other. And if somebody, if one person inspires others to improve, to develop, so then the person who was the inspiration also gains merit. And so when, when we pray for somebody, 
they are the inspiration for our prayer. So if that, so that person now gains great merit because there's all these people praying for them. There's all these people that are changing as a result of them. There's all these people who are connecting deeper to God as a result of this, this person who's going through a challenge. So that adds merit to that person who's suffering. And especially if they're learning from that person. If that person, let's say, has uh, you know, certain good traits and when we beseech God, we recognize those traits and we say, oh, this person is so kind, God, please have mercy on them. So we're actually learning from that person. We're reminding ourselves of their good traits. So even more so, we, we bring them merit by, by, by praying for them, by thinking about their, their good traits. And we as a result of us changing ourselves, which is because of them, we bring merit to them. So that's how some understand the concept of, of praying for others. <clears throat> okay. So that's um, that's sort of section one for today. So more of the the philosophical. Um, but I think the the biggest takeaway from that section was was you know the second part is a little more technical how it works. How, how but the, the first part I think is the most important thing in terms of the experience of praying, which is just to to say it one more time that like we talked about last week that we we approach prayer with the idea that. We, we, we want to inculcate within ourselves, develop within ourselves a clarity that we are speaking to God. God, you're the one who can, who can answer my prayers. You, God, you're in control. And, and then when we make our ask, when we actually make our request, so it's so much deeper, it's so much more meaningful. We're, we're, we're literally talking to God, having a conversation, and that brings about the ultimate purpose of creation, the very purpose that we were put here for, which is for us to connect to God. And while we while we need to do the other things also, Torah study, to understand how to connect to God, how to be, how to act, and we need to improve our character, and we need to do acts of kindness to emulate God and make ourselves similar. But what actually brings us close is acts of service, is 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 acts of dedication towards God, and and especially prayer where we're actually just talking to God, speaking to God is, is key in actually connecting us and bringing us close to him, thereby bringing out the entire purpose of creation. Okay, now let's shift a little bit um, and talk now a little bit more. Oh yeah, go ahead, Sue. You have to unmute. So far, you've suggested that someone who is doing all these things is making that connection and doing their praying is going to be it's usually someone who's not going to be, shouldn't be someone who something that's overly challenging will be thrown at unless they deter off their path, even if it's in a way that they're not aware of, because I guess they're right. So it, you could take that it, to that conclusion, but I don't think it, we have to go to that conclusion because we don't really know God's calculations. Like we said, in the case of Isaac, even Yitzchak, right? God mm -hmm. desires the prayers of the righteous. So it could be sometimes, especially the righteous, you know, you'd say, what do you mean? They're so connected already. They don't need to connect, but you know, it may be different for different people. So we can't really 
surmise on our own what each individual needs. Yeah, I've heard an interesting theory um, that people who aren't recovering from things are have a certain bond with it so they don't move forward. Is this like a subconscious, this bond, they call it a trauma bond um, in therapy parlance. Is that, could that also be called like a subconscious or unconscious form of um, idolatry? Um, I'm not sure if I fully understand, but maybe if you could ask after, well, we could, you could clarify and we could discuss. Let's say if someone, um, I had um, something happen with a lot of people trauma and they react, they continue through life. They, they haven't let it go. They have continued to react to that sort of person. Somewhere along the line, their minds have made a quote unquote, um, I guess they have a living, um, to, I get, what do you call it when, um, like an altar, living altar to, to okay. that situation, they never really leave it. And even though they may think they're trying to otherwise be righteous, something isn't there. Right. So that's like an uncut. They're accident. I guess they're accidentally not, partly not connected, making uh -huh. that connection. Uh -huh. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm not. I'm not sure, um, but let's let's talk about it after. Okay. Then you could really clarify it for me. Okay, so before we we really launch into discussing again the Shmona Esrei, the eighteen blessings, which form the the the, the primary prayer in our daily litur liturgy. So let's get a little bit of the of the background. So Maimonides, the Rambam, talks about the some of the history of the development of the of the Shemona Esrei. And uh, and we started actually from the beginning of chapter one last week, the very first line, it's not on the source sheet this week, where where Maimonides says that there is a positive mitzvah, a positive commandment for a person to pray every day. That's how others disagree, but that's how that's how Maimonides holds. So so according to Torah law, a person is supposed to pray at least once a day. Um, now, so if you look at source number four, the Rambam now goes on and he explains the number of prayers is not prescribed in the Torah, nor does it prescribe a specific formula for prayer. Also, according to Torah law, there are no fixed times for prayers. So again, according to the, the, the biblical, the, the Torah itself, it just says, to serve God with all your heart, and it refers to prayer. So Rambam rules, that means that the Torah is saying you have to pray at least once a day. What do you have to say? It doesn't say. Um, now that the sages have, have sort of told us what it takes to pray, and, and that's what uh, he goes on in the next section. Now, I don't mean the words. I mean, like, what's the, what's the formula for prayer? Because even if the Torah doesn't tell us what words, but maybe there's a specific formula. And that's the formula that we've been talking about. We talked more about it last week. So he says, rather, this commandment obligates each person to offer supplication and prayer every day and utter praises of the holy ones. That's the first thing, the praises that we, we said. 
then petition for Allah's needs with requests and supplications. Then you make your requests, your supplications. And finally, afterwards, you give praise and you thank God for the goodness that he has bestowed upon him. Each one, okay, for the goodness. So there's three steps. There's a formula to prayer. And Maimani seems to understand that this is even to fulfill the biblical commandment, which it doesn't specify what to say, but there is a how. There's a formula. You start off by praising God, then you make your supplications, and then you give thanks. And it says each one according to his ability. So everybody should do it every, according to the Torah. Everybody should just do it however they, they know how. So he goes on and he says, a person who is eloquent would offer many prayers and requests. And conversely, a person who was inarticulate would speak as well as he could and whenever he desired, didn't have so much to say necessarily, but that's how it was. Similarly, the number of prayers was dependent on each person's ability. Some would pray once daily, others several times. But then it reached a point where that wasn't going to work anymore. When Israel was exiled in the time of the wicked Nebuchadnezzar, so when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple and exiled the Jewish people, they became interspersed in Persia and Greece and other nations. Children were born to them in these foreign countries, and those children's language was confused. The speech of each and every one was a concoction of many tongues. No one was able to express himself coherently in any one language, but rather in a mixture of languages. As Nehemiah states, and their children spoke half in Ashdodit and did not know how to speak the Jewish language. Rather, they would speak according to the language of various other peoples. So what eventually happened was, this is again, the first exile. This is, uh, what are we now? Uh, like 2,500 years ago about. So after the, the, the destruction of the first temple, we're in exile, Jewish people are scattered. We start speaking other languages. Our knowledge of Lashon HaKodesh, of the Holy Hebrew language is, is, is starting to dissipate. And consequently, when someone would pray, he would, be, he would be limited in his ability to request his needs or to praise the Holy One, blessed be he, in Hebrew, unless other languages were mixed in with it. And when Ezra and his court saw this, Ezra was, was the leader of the Jewish people at the time, of, actually, of the return to Israel and the rebuilding, the building of the second temple. So they established, the rabbis of that time established 18 blessings in sequence. The rabbis of the time were called the Anshe Knesses Hagadola, the men of the great assembly. And Ezra was there. There were, I think, 120 maybe. There was, a, there was a whole great group, many of them rabbis. I mean, many of, some of them even prophets, all of them rabbis, probably, some of them prophets. And, uh, and they are the ones who composed what we call the Shmona Esrei, or sometimes we call it the Amidah, the standing prayer. If you turn the, to the second page, skip that paragraph, go to the second page. Thus, the prayers could be set in the mouths of everyone. They could learn them quickly. And the prayers of those unable to express themselves would be as complete as the prayers of the most eloquent. It was because of this matter that they established all the blessings and prayers so that they would be ordered in the mouths of all Israel so that each blessing would be set in the mouth of each person who was unable to express himself. So basically, they, now there were set prayers that everybody could say, and, uh, and this way everybody could express what was necessary to express. So we, we kind of live in a time where, again, not everybody knows Lashon HaKodesh, not everybody knows Hebrew so well. And so some people will prefer to, to, to pray in English, and you actually, it's okay, one is allowed to, to pray in English as well. 
But there's a certain power that comes with the words that were composed by these, by the, by the man of the Greek assembly and using it, not just the translation because sometimes things are lost in translation. The word, the Hebrew words themselves carry great power. These Hebrew words were composed by these tremendous rabbis, including prophets. So there's a tremendous power that goes with these words themselves. And so a person really has the option. They, there's, there's, you know, there's a couple of options and there's the best option. A person can pray in English. They fulfill their obligation to pray by praying in English. A person can pray in Hebrew, even if they don't understand the words, because the words are so powerful that they have a tremendous effect, even if we don't understand them. Now, obviously, the best is to pray in Hebrew and to understand them. And sometimes that takes also lots of effort. But if a person, again, it's, it's a building process. If a person works on a couple of words every day, once, if a person you have to, person has to start with reading Hebrew, but if a person already has practiced and reads Hebrew, then they can then work on, could be one a day, one word a day, you know, and then the next day, two words, whatever it is, and slowly build up. It's not easy, but again, it's like we said, like anything, it's a pr prayer is a, is a process and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that we can develop and, and, and should always be trying to improve on. So we're going to go through a little bit. We're going to start going through some of the liturgy. And I, I would like to try to, there's, there's so many different ways to understand the, the words of the Shemona Esrei. There's many different books that, that explain the many different commentaries. So, but I'm not planning to like delve in and spend, you know, hours and hours on each word. I want to give us something to think about. And ideally, I want to try to, for it to connect to the themes that we're developing earlier in the class. So, so, so for, for so far, we're developing, you know, the, the purpose of prayer is to recognize that God is in control. We start off with praising God. Um, it bring, this brings us to the purpose of creation, that we're connecting with God. So can we find these messages in the, in the words of the prayers themselves? <clears throat> So let's, let's delve into it. So on your source sheet, we have the beginning of the prayer. And the very first blessing is the blessing of Avos, of the forefathers. And we're going to look at the first half of the blessing. So the blessing begins, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu. I'm not going to use God's name. I'll use Hashem and Elokeinu. Ve'elokei avoseinu, elokei Abraham, elokei Yitzchak, ve'elokei Yaakov. I know I'm reading fast. I'm going to slow it down as we go, because we're going to go through each piece on its own. The first, the beginning of the blessing is blessed, is Baruch Hashem. The loose translation is blessed are you, Hashem, our God. Now, what does it mean, blessed are you, Hashem, our God? It's a class on its own. I'm not going to do it today. We can talk about it another day, what the word Baruch means. Are we blessing God? Does God need our blessing somehow? It's a very important question. Um, I hope that we'll, we'll, we'll spend some time on it at a later time. So in this blessing, though, we talk about how God is Elokei Avoseinu, God of our fathers, the second line, God of our fathers. So we're, and this is the first blessing. The first blessing is, again, the blessing that we call Avos, the blessing of the fathers. And we first generalize, we say, <clears throat> God is the God of our fathers. 
Now, we've already said that the, the beginning, the way that we are to start off our prayers is first to become familiar, to acquaint ourselves with who it is that we're talking to and that we're speaking to God, the one who, who can, who's almighty, all powerful, is the one who can fulfill whatever we're lacking. That's the purpose of beginning our prayers with praise. Where does that recognition come from? Our recognition of, 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 of God. It starts with our forefathers. It really starts with Abraham, with Avraham, right? The first monotheist, so to speak. There were others before him, but he sort of restarted things for us. He's the father of our nation. He's the beginning of our tradition. And that tradition is, is picked up by, by, by his, his son Yitzchak and his son Yaakov, Isaac and Jacob. And, and as we'll touch on, each one contributes his own, his own little bit to the, to the tradition and to our understanding of God. But it starts with, it starts with the forefathers. So if we're, if we're gonna try to clarify for ourselves and acquaint ourselves with, with God before we, before we pray to him, it starts with recognizing that where, where our tradition comes from, where our relationship with God originates. And that's with the, with the forefathers. Um, <clears throat> now, even when the, when the Jewish people were at the, the, the Red Sea, God splits the sea for them and they sing a song of praise to God. And they say, this is my God and I will glorify him. They see God, you know, God display his might, God display his, his, his miracles. They say, this is my God and I will glorify him. And then they say, the God of my father and I will exalt him. I will extol him. So again, even there, they, where they're experiencing this great experience of seeing the, the splitting of the sea, but they, they realize where their relationship with God comes from. It's the God of my father. This, there's a tradition here that's that, 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 that this is, this is based on this relationship is based on this non, this knowledge and understanding is based on something. Um, so any, any appreciation of, of God, any relationship with him cannot be removed from this context of this chain of tradition that originates with our forefathers. Additionally, the way that we, that we, um, that we recognize God is through his attributes, through, through the way that, that he interacts with the world. We never understand God's essence, but we, we, we understand the way that he interacts with the world. And each of the forefathers exemplified certain character traits which emulate those, those ways of God. And that's, that's why we, uh, we are going to single out each of the forefathers because each one has a, has a, unique, um, a, a unique relationship with God, a unique way of relating to God, and also a unique way of demonstrating and teaching us about God's attributes. Um, <clears throat> so, so that's what, so we say, God is the God of our, of our fathers. Abraham, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. So what did each of these great men represent? Um, what attribute did they teach us about God? They each, how did they relate to God? What did they see in God that, that they now passed on to us? 
So Abraham, Abraham is famous for his acts of kindness. Certainly he's famous as uh, welcoming guests, but, uh, but not just, he didn't just perform acts of kindness. The, the, the Midrash teaches us that when Abraham would have guests, so they would, you know, he, he would invite travelers, feed them, care for them. And then before they left, they'd be like, you know, thank you so much, right? We were so appreciative. And Abraham would say, don't, don't thank me. Thank the one who provided all of this. And they'd be like, well, that's what we're doing. Thank you so much. And be like, no, 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 don't thank me. Thank the one who, who provides everything in the world. And they'd say, what are you talking about? And he would tell them about how God is the one who provides everything. And so Abraham didn't just emulate and, 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 and act in the way that God acted with acts of kindness, but he also shared that the, the fact that God is the provider, that God, God showers the world with kindness with others. So, so Abraham teaches that attribute to the world. Yitzchak, Isaac, um, his attribute is either justice or the attribute of, of, uh, of, of um, constraint, of gavura, of might. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And then Isaac, and then Yaakov is the attribute of MS, of truth. And we're gonna, I'll elaborate on those in, uh, in a moment as we, as we wind down here. So, so the, the next word is hakel, which means the, here it's translated as the almighty. It really means like powerful, the mighty, but it's a specific type of might, according to, at least according to, to Rabbi Chaim Freelander. The idea of might here is, and there's, there's, it's used in this context in other places, this name of God actually is powerful in kindness, powerful in kindness. So we're back to kindness again. And what the idea is, is that it, according to Reb Chaim Friedlander, is that this description, this word hakel, is the backdrop to all of creation. It's saying that everything that emanates from God all comes from, like we started, right, from this desire to bestow good. So that's like an introductory word, powerful in kindness, so that everything that emanates from him is, is goodness, is, is, is from a desire to bestow goodness upon us. That's where the world comes from. That's, that's what this word is representing. And then we have three words to describe God. These are actually words that Moshe, Moses uses to describe God in, 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 in Devarim. Moshe says, he calls him Hagadol, Hagibar, Vehanora, the great the powerful and the awesome. So what does great mean? Great could be lots of things, right? Gadol, great, great in what way? So, so the different commentaries try to understand these three ideas to relate back to the forefathers. Great relates back to Abraham, great in kindness. Why, is, why does the word great, you know, great could be any attribute. Greg and I don't know, you know, why kindness? Why, why, why do we look at the word great? Do we think kindness? So the idea is because that's the most obvious trait that jumps out at us, at least if we're thinking of God, is the kindness, is all that God provides for us. So, so when, we, when we think of what is God great in, God is great in kindness. 
And that corresponds again to Avraham. That's the trait that we see when we relate to God through the way that Avraham related to God is, the, is, is great in kindness. Now, again, God wants to bestow good on us. So in that, in that desire to, to bestow goodness, he could have just, like we said, said, okay, here it is. Here's the goodness. Come and get it. In, enjoy, right? But if he did that, it wouldn't quite be the ultimate goodness because it's an even greater goodness if we can earn it, right? If we have the chance to earn that goodness, then it's something that we'll enjoy more. So there's a certain degree of constraint that kicks in over there. And that's what the word gibor means, right? The, like the sages teach us, Ezehu gibor, who is mighty, one who can overcome their hakovesh yitzro, one who can overcome their inclination. So we can use the, so to speak, the same type of word to describe God want, has an inclination, so to speak, to, 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 to do good. And he could have just said, I'm creating souls, come and enjoy. But God displays the, the attribute of, of might, of constraint, where he says, actually, instead, I'm going to create a world, a, a world where that goodness is not guaranteed because a person will have to earn it. But ultimately, it's for their benefit because ultimately, they have, they, have a, they have the opportunity to earn a much greater experience, a much greater connection with God, something that's, that's not given to them for free, something that's earned. So, so when, when, uh, when, God, but when, when God actually creates a world, so he's exercising the attribute of, of might, of, of, of uh, constraint. And, uh, and this is this is something that also Yitzchak excelled in. Yitzchak was his his attribute was 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 constraint. He he allows himself to be to be almost sacrificed. He constrains his himself. Um, and and the, the other attribute that's at play here is is justice, where God is saying, "I could give it to you for free, but it's even better if it's earned. If it if there's justice, and uh, and so that's that's." That's uh, that's the 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 might. That's the gibor is 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 constraining his desire to do good, in a way that actually you know it's greater good because now we have a chance to to earn it. And finally, the word nora, the word awesome. So what does awesome mean? Awesome means awesome, right? It's like beyond. Yeah. Okay. No problem. It's beyond. Uh, it's beyond uh, beyond understanding almost. And that's where we speak, what's beyond, what's awesome? Awesome is when we encounter perfection. The word nora is really where we speak, where, 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 we see, where we see perfection, where God really takes all the different attributes to create a situation of, of, of perfection, where we now have God's kindness and we have God's, um, his justice at the same time, giving us a chance to earn our, our way into the world to come. And those two things combined are sort of the, 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 perfect, the perfect combination. That's, that's, uh, that's where we, we look at that and we say, wow, this is, this is, this is beyond, this, this, is, this is perfect. And, and we're blown away when we see perfection. We can't really achieve total perfection, but we're blown away. And, and this corresponds to Yaakov. Yaakov is the third of the forefathers. 
Um, we have we have Avraham. Avraham excels in kindness, but he, and Avraham has two children. One is Isaac. Uh, one is uh, Isaac, and one is Yishmael. And 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 one of those children doesn't work out as well, right? He's 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 too kind. He he he, he Yishmael, so to speak. He he he, and and that leads him astray. Um, not actually too kind, but 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 that, that it's that attribute that he's following, but he, it, it leads him astray. Then you have Isaac. Isaac has two children, Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau. Isaac is all about constraint, all about justice. Well, Esau is also about justice, but he's too much about justice. He's a murderer. He's very, he's, he's off, right? So, so, so his children out of, out of Isaac's children, one is on, one is off. But finally, Yaakov, Yaakov takes the two attributes of his father and he, he synthesizes them, of his, two, of his father and his grandfather, of justice and kindness, mixing them together. And Yaakov is represented by, represents Torah. And that's what Torah does for us. Torah teaches us how to relate to these different attributes, when to apply kindness, when to apply justice, how to synthesize the two. And that's what's, what's, being re that's what's represented by Yaakov. That's what Yaakov teaches to us. And Yaakov's children are all on the path as a result. Doesn't have anyone go off because he represents the synthesis through Torah of bringing up the, these different attributes together. That's the perfection that the, the awesomeness that the word Nora, when we observe that in God, we observe the different attributes all coming together for perfection. So then we're blown away. Okay, so that's uh, a little bit of liturgy. As I said, you know, you can, you could, we're already getting a little bit deep, you could get super deep, but uh, hopefully these are ideas that we can try to relate to um, and relate them back to, uh, to, to the concepts that we're trying to develop and, uh, and, and think about the, the purpose of creation, the, the, the desire to, to connect with God and, and using prayer as a means to do that. Sorry for holding you a little extra time. We'll stop over there. <clears throat>